Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and from the US, we have Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who has been talking with Kim Schoenholtz, professor at NYU Stern School of Business. This week, we'll be talking about the latest developments in the Brexit debate, particularly looking at Carolyn Fairburn, the head of the CBI's latest statements about what Britain and the city need to do to stay competitive with the EU. We'll also be looking at the continuing row over the appointment of José Manuel Barroso, the former president of the European Commission, to Goldman Sachs. And finally, from the US, Ben McClanahan will be talking to Mr. Schoenholz from NYU about the latest developments in terms of Fed policy following the Jackson Hole Summit. First, though, to the latest pronouncements by the CBI about what the city should do, particularly on Brexit. Martin, you've been looking at what she's been saying. Before we start, let's first hear a clip. I talked to her and asked her first what she thought needed to change in terms of the regulatory balance. We need really strong regulation in this country, but particularly at a time now when we have this highly competitive sector that we are very good at, that matters so much to the economy, making sure that we have competitiveness sitting alongside prudential management and consumer protection. I mean, it is interesting that competitiveness is not an objective in the FCA's terms of reference at the moment. Competition is and competitiveness isn't. And whether that could be included as a purpose, I think, is a question that we would like to ask. I don't think it's primary, but it would require, we think, secondary legislation change. And even a signal to do it at some point in the future, I think, would be a Powerful thing to but do. your message would be that that's all the more important now that the likes of Frankfurt and Paris and so on Absolutely right. are much more serious competitors. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. This is about competitiveness. Yeah. And frankly, I think you know, in the context of global competition, so very powerful US banking centres, obviously Asia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai. So you know, this is a global marketplace. We are extraordinarily good at it. High productivity, high employment and we need to be as competitive as we can possibly be. So this would be a good moment. I think probably there would be more benchmarking of the competitiveness, and that's primarily, I mean, I think we're primarily talking about cost base, Mm -hmm. but probably also about agility, speed of response, speed of reaction. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think in some of these, it would differ by segment, and in the highly cost-competitive segments, it would be about cost. In others, it might be about the ability and the speed of response. But to be able to understand the competitive landscape and so to know what the impact might be, you may still take that decision and it might be the right decision in terms of prudential management or in terms of consumer protection, but you just sat it alongside the impact it might have on GDP, on on jobs and on overall competitiveness. So it's not something that would be paramount, it would not be set above, but it would be set alongside as a consideration. 
That's interesting. So you think it should be on a par with? I think be open to debate. Because I have to say, I mean, I think that it's been hugely important. You know, I, I was on the board of the FCA after the crash. Yeah. And I know how important it has been to have you know, a really hard look at prudential management and capital ratios. And, and, and those have been very, very important things. But we are now at a place and a time in our history when we are talking about an exposure to competition that is potentially a significant number of notches up. So Martin, she's outlining there really that she does think that toughening up regulation post-crisis was very important, but equally talking about competitiveness now and the importance of being able to compete with EU financial centres. But she also did talk about Asian and US financial centres as well. What's your impression of that agenda and what are the implications? Her comments are interesting in that they're slightly out of step with those that we've heard from other financial lobbying groups, particularly the British Bankers Association and also this committee of financial services chairman that Shriti Vadera, the Santander UK chairman, is chairing, who have all stressed the need for the UK to maintain what's called equivalence. In other words, not to have a bonfire of EU regulations now that we are leaving the block and get rid of the rules that we don't like. They've stressed, no, no, we have to keep all the rules. We have to keep this equivalence because that is crucial to maintain access to the single market because in many areas, the EU are prepared to give you passporting access to the single market for particular sectors, providing that the regulatory framework and supervisory rules around that sector in the third country are considered equivalent. So by calling for this more friendly approach, Ms. Fairborn is also likely to raise fears of the light-touch regime that existed before the financial crisis, which was pretty widely discredited as a result of what happened. Let me bring Laura in here. Yeah, I just think given all those concerns around the supervisory approach, probably the only place you can really compete with the other European centres is around things like tax policy and around incentives. So if you think about the UK bank tax, that is something we have in the UK, which is very much out of step with other countries. You can compete around corporate tax. You can give other kind of incentives. Now, we've seen from the news about Apple's fine today for Ireland, 13 billion euro worth of a fine. You have to be very careful in that, but it does seem like it's an area where there is certainly some scope for the UK to try to assert a competitive position if it does decide to go down that route. Well, this punitive tax that you refer to, the 8% surcharge that's on corporation tax is actually one thing specifically that Ms Fairburn did refer to. Let's hear what she had to say exactly on that. There have been tax policies that have been targeted at the financial services sector since the crash, and I think they are entirely understandable. There was a cost to the public purse, the bank levy, and now the corporation tax surcharge. We believe that it would be a strong signal of confidence and commitment to the sector for there to be a commitment to, at some point, remove the corporation tax surcharge from the banking sector. We said it before the vote, and I think we think it's even more important now. And I think symbols are really important at the moment. They're important statements of direction of travel, commitment, and again about competitiveness that without putting any time frame on this, and we understand the fiscal issues, of course, but that at some point in the future, and we'd originally said at the point at which the deficit had been paid down, and now that may be further out, that could be removed in its entirety, and that could be signalled now. So I think it would be noticed by the world, I think it would be a signal of commitment, and in a sense, a signal of a chapter being over where the banks were considered to be more of a problem than an opportunity. And Martin, a final thought from you on the overall point. 
Well, I guess what she's saying there will be music to the ears of the chairman of the big UK banks who very much dislike this super tax, but it will also raise the heckles of people in Brussels and in Paris and Berlin who fear that what the UK will strategically opt for on Brexit is to try and become a low-tax, light-touch regulation kind of offshore financial centre. Because, of course, without that 8% surcharge, the banks would fall into line with mainstream corporation tax, which is now among the lowest, albeit not as low as Ireland, (laughs) among the lowest in the EU. So certainly lower than the other mainstream financial centres like Paris and Frankfurt. We should leave the topic there, but obviously something we'll keep monitoring. Let's move on to the second story of the day. Laura, you've been looking at what has long been a fairly controversial appointment of José Manuel Barroso, the former president of the European Commission, to be a senior figure at Goldman Sachs. I remember within a few days of it happening, Francois Hollande, the French president, said it was outrageous. Now there's been a petition Yeah, so this thing just keeps on going. So now some EU civil servants have started a petition on the change.org website and they're basically denouncing the appointment and they're calling for the European Commission to take various sanctions against Mr Barroso, including taking away the pension which he got. Now he gets about €100,000 per year in the pension. So there are now about 76,000 signatures. I wouldn't call that 76,000 people purely because there is no way to verify these are all unique signatures. That does give it some level of credibility. However, there is no legal basis whatsoever to take the pension away from Mr. Barroso because after he left office in October 2014, he had an 18-month period during which he couldn't get involved in any of this kind of work. He did fully comply with that. And the legal position is at the end of that 18-month period, he is free to do whatever he wishes. We should say that he has followed a pattern that a lot of others, both in the EU and at other public bodies, whether that be government or other policymaking regulators and so on, have followed up till now, right? Well, I mean, he is even actually following someone into this actual job he has taken. So basically, he is now going to be the non-executive chairman for Goldman Sachs International, which is Goldman's London-based investment bank. In that role, he replaces Peter Sutherland, who was a former European commissioner for Ireland. So there is certainly precedent of senior EU figures albeit not as senior as this gentleman going to Goldman Sachs. Against that, though, you do have the current EC president, Jean-Claude Juncker, who did comment that while Mr. Rosso had kept all the rules, he would not go to Goldman Sachs. And he appeared to question the choice of bank Mr. Rosso has gone to, because Goldman Sachs is a bank which was heavily involved in the subprime crisis in the US, which fueled a lot of the global financial crisis. It was also involved in a lot of issues around the Greek crisis. So certainly this is probably the strongest reaction we have ever seen because these kind of appointments do happen. After these people leave the stage in the European Commission, they do very often end up going to large private companies. Well, it's certainly going to fuel the debate, I suspect, over the revolving door between policymakers and big banks. Let's go for our final segment to the US, where Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been speaking to Kim Schoenholtz. He's professor at NYU Stern School of Business. And they talked about what came out of the Jackson Hole Summit this past weekend. So, Kim, the slogan for the weekend was designing monetary policy frameworks for the future, which suggests that come up with some very firm ideas to give you a much better sense of the future direction of monetary policy in the world's biggest economy. But was that the case? I think it was more experimental, Ben. You know, the big picture is 
that policymakers are aware we're in an era of low inflation and low growth. And that means that the neutral real interest rate, the equilibrium real interest rate is very low, maybe less than 1%. And that means that when we get to the next recession, it's very likely that interest rates are going to fall back to zero again in nominal terms. And they're thinking about what kinds of policies might make sense in a world like that to make monetary policy work. So that's the big picture. What they've come up with are a variety of ideas, some of which have been out there. They're exploring them. They're not committed to anything. And it's still very premature to make judgments about what will in fact be done. So we've had seven or eight years of crisis settings, right, using unconventional tools. So what's left? Well, first, let's talk about what their view is of what they've achieved. I think the conventional view of the FOMC is that the tools they've been using, quantitative easing, mm -hmm. forward guidance, and some tool that changes the mix of their balance sheet, which I call targeted asset purchases, they think those tools have worked. In other words, they've restored the economy to a point where employment is close to normal levels and where inflation is still a bit below, but getting closer to their target. So from their perspective, they think that they've had some success. The question is whether that's going to be adequate in the future, given the continued trend toward lower real rates, low inflation, mm -hmm. and slow growth. What's left then? Well, these are experiments. I mean, remember, there are already countries outside the United States that have negative interest rates. If you think about the bond market, something increasingly close to a third of all nominal sovereign bonds outstanding have negative rates. Right. So the idea that rates could go below zero is no longer a textbook discussion. It's a reality. The question is how far. So long as cash pays zero, and so it presents an alternative, you really can't push interest rates far below zero. If you were to try to do that, to push below what I call the effective lower bound, monetary policy would become contractionary because people would hoard cash and that would disintermediate the banks and they would have less wherewithal to lend. I'm sure the central banks who are doing this are aware of that risk. And that's why all of them have lowered interest rates only slightly or modestly below mm -hmm. zero. The smaller countries may be able to go a little bit further than the big ones, because in the case of places like Europe or Japan, they're big economies of scale. So if they tried to push interest rates further below zero, there would be more incentive to hold or hoard cash. The U.S. is in that big class. So unless we change the rules about cash, unless we got rid of cash or unless we forced cash to have a negative interest rate in some sense, the U.S. can't push rates much below zero either. Maybe mm -hmm. a little bit, and that could be helpful, but not a lot. That's tool one. Another tool that people have talked about is literally getting rid of cash or converting to an electronic cash means. That would allow you to push interest rates much further down in nominal terms. There was a paper, Jackson Hole, about that, and there's been discussion of it. There have been economists who've advocated a cashless society for many years. There are some economies, like those in Scandinavia, where cash use is very low. So it's plausible they could get there before others do. But I suspect there would still be a lot of popular resistance to the idea of getting rid of cash or of effectively taxing cash that is with a negative interest rate. So mm. I don't think this is about to happen soon. Isn't the evidence of the early experiments in negative rates from the Eurozone and Japan a negative one? It's not clear that it's negative, but I think it's not clear that it's working well. And the real 
issue is, why are people so nervous about it? Real interest rates that is adjusted for inflation are negative frequently in the United States, probably more than half the time over the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. So the question is why nominal interest rates being even slightly negative make people uncomfortable. One possible answer is that it's viewed as a desperation act by the central bank. Now, I think that tells you that in order to make negative interest rates work, they have to become more widely used as a regular tool. So if we imagine for the last 100 years, we'd had negative rates every decade for a year or two, it might not come off as being as shocking as it is today. That's one issue. But that requires education, and it's not easy to educate people about this. So I'm, I, I think Where that, do you begin to educate people about this? Well, you have to make it clear that whether they realize it or not, that, for example, real interest rates have been negative a lot. And mm -hmm. people do know that in some practical sense because they know that their pension savings don't grow as quickly. And they're aware that that can be a problem. But frankly, the media sometimes scare them by highlighting the fact that nominal interest rates are low and saying that's really hurting your pension. Mm -hmm. But it's the real interest rates being low that are hurting their pensions. I think at Jackson Hole, there was also a discussion of helicopter money. Yes. Uh, are you a, a skeptic on that? Well, I think the question is not whether it can work, but what it really is as a policy. And I'd argue that helicopter money, and Steve Cicchetti and I have argued this together on our blog. Steve is your co-author. Co-author, that's right. Moneyandbanking.com. Moneyandbanking.com, thank you. We've argued that helicopter money is really a fiscal policy. And when we analyzed that we interpreted as a fiscal stimulus that's financed by quantitative easing, by an expansion of the central bank's balance sheet. So that doesn't make it ineffective, but it really means that, at least in democratic societies, fiscal policies are implemented by elected officials, not mm -hmm. by appointed ones at a central bank. And I understand why that can be distressing for people who would like to see more stimulative policies. That includes me. I would like to see more stimulative fiscal policies in the United States. But it still seems quite reasonable to me that it should be elected officials making that decision. Putting too much authority in the central bank actually, I think, ultimately risks its independence and its effectiveness. So just coming back finally to the education aspect of some of these unconventional tools, if you were Janet Yellen, what's the best way to begin the sort of consultation process with the public? It's grassroots. In fact, it's probably not something that starts at Chair Yellen's level. It might start more effectively at the individual Federal Reserve banks working in their communities to educate people that this should not be considered so unusual. And part of that process may get easier because negative rates are now so common outside the United States. And interest rates are still pretty low. And the idea that they could go lower may no longer be as shocking. Kim Schoenholz, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ben. My pleasure. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura here in the studio. Our guest, Carolyn Fairbin, who is Director General of the CBI here in the UK, and also Ben and his guest, Kim Schoenholtz, in the US. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corian provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com.